Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We are continuing our study in 1 John, of course. We are nearing the end. We are in chapter 5, verses 6 through 12 today. Uh, And in case you were wondering, we did not bring D-Ray into town in order for me to take his course on brevity in speech. Um, So I have not had that course, as most of you well know. In fact, I was told this week by a lady who's been watching our services, probably she's watching right now, I was told that uh, I can pack three Methodist sermons into one week. And I took that as a compliment. I thought that was a good thing. And so I intend to do that again uh, this morning. Uh, I do want to mention that uh, D-Ray has a blog that uh, he is writing on grief, and so if you have experience or you know someone who has, he is sharing his uh, insights over the last 15 months on a blog. It is called Facing Truth Facing loss, sorry, I just asked him on the way up here and I still forgot. I did look it up, by the way, but Facing Loss blog. So you can look up his name as I did and you can find it or you can look up that Facing Loss and uh, it is a good resource to share with someone who is going through a similar circumstance. This morning we are talking about evidence. In fact, we're talking about overwhelming evidence. Now, you know that in a trial, evidence is extremely important. There's all kinds of evidence. There is circumstantial evidence. That is, there are some things that may or may not tie someone to a crime. It's not the best of evidence, but there is circumstantial evidence that someone might have been involved. Then, of course, there is scientific evidence, and that has grown in the last few years to become very important in various trials, so that even if you do not have the other forms of evidence, if you have some scientific evidence, that is some DNA, you can convict someone of a crime. Then, of course, there is eyewitness evidence or testimony, and that is the the best kind of evidence, someone who says, I saw him do it. Better than that is if you have two or three people who say in agreement, I saw someone do something. That kind of evidence is overwhelming indeed. And of course, the purpose of evidence is to prove the validity or truth of something. Now, of course, John is not trying to find somebody guilty of something. So in that sense, it's not the same kind of evidence that you and I normally think about. Instead, John is trying to prove the validity of the truth that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, and because he is the Son of God, then you and I must respond appropriately. Years ago, when I was younger, there was a uh, famous book. It was sort of a classic by Josh McDowell, and it was titled, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And that's essentially what we're talking about this morning, though I did not want to steal his title. So I'm simply calling this overwhelming evidence. Last week, we looked at the fact that our faith is the key to victory. And I mentioned that faith is only as good as its object. That is, it is important to know what we have faith in, or should I say who we have faith in. 
And so the question today is, how can we know that our faith is in the right thing? How can we know that our faith is in the right person? Or are we being deceived like others? Remember in chapter 4, John said, do not believe every spirit, but test or discern the spirits. Well, we're going to see this morning that we have plenty of testimony to verify the fact that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, and therefore, we must respond. There is overwhelming evidence. The problem is not with the evidence. It's clear. If you haven't responded, the problem is with you. So let's look at 1 John chapter 5. I'll start reading in verse 6, and we will make our way down to verse 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life." Now, we're basically doing sort of a mock trial this morning. Again, not to prove someone guilty. Instead, this mock trial is to examine the evidence and come to the conclusion that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, and therefore, we must respond in one way or the other. Some of you may have done mock trials when you were in school. I did not, but some of you may have. And so, it's sort of a mock trial this morning. Now, in a trial, we have to start with some preliminary instructions. That is, there's a few things I need to get on the table so that when we do present the evidence, you will be able to understand what that evidence is. So I'm starting with preliminary instructions, and the instructions are twofold. Number one in this text, we have an interpretive dilemma. That is, there is something here that is difficult. In fact, as we read this, you might want to go back to the previous verses and say, let's just go back to the love of God. That was easier to understand. Let's go back to loving one another like we've been talking about for the last month, because at least that was straightforward. But what in the world is John talking about when he talks about the water and the blood? It's in verse 6, and it's there again in verse 8. And so whatever conclusion we come to about this strange phrase... It's going to be applicable for both of those verses. One commentator said this is the most perplexing passage in the epistle and one of the most perplexing in the entire of the New Testament. In other words, this is a difficult passage to interpret. Now, we assume that John's audience understood what he's talking about. You see, that's the issue with a letter. We're only getting one side of the issue. And so we assume that the people to whom John wrote initially understood exactly what he meant by water and blood, otherwise he would have expounded upon it. But to us, it's not so clear. So what does it mean? 
Well, there have been various interpretations through the years about what this phrase, water and blood, refer to. Many of the reformers believe that their phrase referred to the sacraments of the church. That is, baptism and the Lord's Supper. They said this is, this is referring to those twin elements in the church of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, it's easy to see how water could refer to baptism, right? But it's not so easy to see how the blood could refer to the Lord's Supper. Now, we do, of course, know that, that blood is an element of the Lord's Supper. We use juice, of course. And so we understand that aspect. But if John were talking about the sacraments of the church, if he was talking about the Lord's Supper, then we would sort of expect him to talk not just about the blood, but also about the body. Because there's those two elements of the Lord's Supper. The body broken and the blood poured out. Now, this is the interpretation that men like Luther and Calvin both believed in. I hesitate to go against those greats of the faith, but I'm going to. I don't think John is talking about the sacraments here because he's not dealing with sacramental theology here. He's dealing with Christology. That is, he's talking about an issue that pertains to Christ. So while it is, it is easy to make that transition and say these are talking about the sacraments, I don't think that's what he's dealing with here. The context simply does not point in that direction. The second option concentrates on a similar phrase that is found in John's gospel. Now, you know that a way to interpret Scripture is to interpret Scripture with other Scripture. And primarily, the way to do that is to look and see how the author uses that particular phrase somewhere else. And so John does that. John, in his gospel, does use the phrase, though it's to turn the opposite way. It's talked about blood and water. And to find that, we have to go to the cross. It's in the 19th chapter of John's gospel where he records the crucifixion of Jesus. The soldiers break the legs of the two criminals that were crucified beside Jesus in order to hasten their death. That is, they could not get up and breathe, and therefore they would die more quickly. And the reason they wanted them to die quicker is because the Sabbath was approaching. But when they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs because they found him to already be dead. And of course, this was in fulfillment of Old Testament scripture, where it said none of his bones would be broken. Instead, they pierced his side with a sword to verify that he was indeed dead. And when that happened, John says that a sudden flow of blood and water came out. So theories abound as to the meaning of that phrase as well, though the terms, as I said, are reversed. There are medical explanations to that, and there are theological speculations to that. The point John is making, regardless of whatever interpretation you come to, is that Jesus was a real man who died a real death. And we're going to see that plays into what we're talking about here as well. However, I don't think that is exactly what John is dealing with here. I think instead the more common explanation has been that John is talking about the baptism of Jesus, that is the beginning of his ministry, and then the death of Jesus, that is the ending of his physical or earthly ministry. I think that fits the context better. Now, you'll recall that the false teachers were teaching in some way, we're not sure exactly what, but they were in some way teaching that Jesus wasn't really the Christ. They didn't have a problem with his baptism. That's why John says, not by water only. That is, they agreed on that part of it. 
Both John and the ones who have left the church agreed with the water part. But there was a discrepancy over the blood part, that is the crucifixion of Christ. And that is why John says he did not come by water only, but by water and blood. They had no problem believing that Jesus had gone through the waters of baptism or that Jesus even had a baptism ministry. Though he himself did not baptize, he delegated that to his disciples. They had no problem with all of that. But they did, of course, have a problem with the bloody death of Christ on the cross. But we've seen in this letter that that was necessary. His birth... His baptism and his death all were necessary in order to reconcile us to God. So both the water and the blood were necessary for our atonement, which is what John is trying to get at here. He's trying to help us understand that all of this was essential. So that's the interpretive difficulty or dilemma. Now that we know that water and blood refer to the baptism of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus, we can move on to our textual dilemma. And maybe this gets even a little more difficult. Look at verses 7 and 8. In verses 7 and 8, I read from my ESV version, for there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Now, if you happen to have a King James Version this morning, you think to yourself, he didn't read it all. In fact, he read something much shorter than what I find in my text. For in the King James, this is what we read. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. So there is a textural issue here, a textural dilemma. Now, you may recall that last summer, we dealt with this kind of thing. We have summer nights on Wednesday nights in July in the fellowship hall over dinner. And last year's topic was this very thing, textural variance. Why is it that there are some passages in the Bible where you might have a footnote that says some manuscripts say this? Now, stay with me because this might get a little difficult. And by the time I'm done, you may wish I had just skipped this whole thing. But I say it to you so that you know that I know. I don't want you going out of here thinking, well, his version was different than mine, and he didn't even know that my version was different. And therefore, there is a problem with the Word of God. And I cannot trust the Bible because there are differences in these versions. Now, keep in mind that nobody is questioning what it says, that is, whether it's true or not. That's not the point. What I read from the King James is true. The question is, is it original? That is, was it in the original manuscripts? You know that we believe in an infallible, inerrant Word of God. That is, the Word of God is perfect and without error, but that applies to the original manuscripts. There are thousands of fragments, thousands of manuscripts, and yes, sometimes there are differences in those manuscripts. Some manuscripts are more valuable than others because they are more ancient or more attested, and so they carry more weight than some other manuscripts do. So what we're seeing here is that most modern translations do not include those words that I read from the King James, not because they're wrong, not because the modern translations are liberal and just wanted to change something. I know some of you think that, but that's not the reason. The reason is 
that by all accounts, those words were not in the original versions. Now, you understand that the transmission of the Bible can include errors. That is, when we have a new translation, when, when a group of people get together and try to have a new translation of the Bible, they can make errors. They are not infallible. They are men and women seeking to do the best they can. In fact, there is a company in Atlanta that spent nearly two years reading and rereading the Holman Christian Bible before it was put out for the very reason of trying to find errors. They wanted to make sure that there were no errors when it was put out because they know that we expect a Bible that is without error. Did you know that the 1631 version of the King James Version contained a significant error? You know what it was? They left out the word not. Now, you know where they left it out? In the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. The original in 1631, that particular version, left the word not out so that it said, thou shalt commit adultery, which is perhaps why some of you love the King James Version. I don't know. They quickly fixed it. They saw their error after it was printed. There are only about 10 versions of that still left, and it's called the wicked version of the King James. So I don't think think you have one of those, because if you do, it's pretty valuable. But in the text we're looking at this morning, the oldest manuscripts, the oldest fragments do not include those particular words that the King James uses. It seems that Erasmus, who was a New Testament Greek scholar in the 15th century, did not include those words in his first and second version. But in his third version, he did. And he did so because he was pressured to do so by others. And so he included those words in his third edition of his Greek New Testament, though he did not again in later versions. He took it back out. But because he included it in that third version, others picked up on it. German versions and uh, Latin versions and even English versions by Tyndall all included that. And so it came down to us in the King James. Now, all of that to say this, I want you to know that the Word of God that you hold in your hands is trustworthy. Yes, there are some textual dilemmas, but none of them are serious enough to discount the doctrines that we hold dear. Like I said, these words are biblical. They're just a question of whether they're authentic. Secondly, I do not want you to be confused by the considerable differences in translations, though I've probably confused you more by even bringing it up. But I want to make sure you know that you can trust the Bible that you have. Whether that Bible is a King James, a New King James, a New American Standard, a Holman, an ESV, or any of the other good translations, not paraphrases, but good translations of God's Word. So, those are merely the preliminary instructions. If you're the jury and you're sitting in a courtroom, you needed to understand those things before we get to the meat of the passage. And the meat of the passage is now that there is plenty of testimony. In fact, you may have noticed that the word testimony occurs over and over again in this section. At least 10 times a form of that word is used. So what is the testimony that John is giving us? Well, he says it's certainly not man's testimony because God's testimony is better than that. And he's probably not referring to any specific man. It's probably just a general statement that when we think about man's testimony, it is always inferior to God's testimony. 
So this testimony has three elements in this text. There are certainly others throughout the rest of the Bible, but I'm going to confine myself to the three elements of testimony that we find here in this particular text. The first testimony is the testimony of the Spirit. The Spirit testifies of Christ, and that testimony is true. Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, and I will ask of the Father, and he will give you another comforter, another counselor to be with you forever. And this is the Spirit of truth. Now, you know that the Holy Spirit serves multiple uh, functions, multiple tasks. In fact, I've already told you, and I'm going to follow through in it. It's not going to be the next series, but it's going to be the one after that. We're going to do a series on the Holy Spirit, looking more deeply at the Holy Spirit's role in our lives and in our salvation. But you know that it is the Holy Spirit who draws us to Christ. You know that it is the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin. It is the Holy Spirit that empowers us for living. It is the Holy Spirit who gifts us so that we can serve faithfully. But the ultimate responsibility of the Holy Spirit is to point people to Jesus Christ. That is the Holy Spirit's role. That is why he sort of seems secondary to us sometimes. He shouldn't, but I'm saying he does. Because he never points to himself, he always points to Jesus. His role is to magnify and glorify Christ. Now, if you'll look at verse 10, you'll notice something significant here. The indwelling Holy Spirit. Everyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within themselves. That is the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. I say that to remind you that the Holy Spirit is given to believers the moment we are saved. Jesus promised this same thing, another comforter, another uh, counselor who would never leave us. Now, I know when you look in the Old Testament, it can be confusing because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon people for specific purposes. That is, the Holy Spirit would come empowering them to to prophesy or to to be a king or, or whatever the purpose, but sometimes the Holy Spirit would leave. That is not what we find in the New Testament. In the New Testament, when Jesus leaves us physically, he promises us another comforter like himself who is going to abide with us forever. So you don't have to pray to receive a second blessing. You don't have to strive to get the Holy Spirit. You don't have to entice him to enter your life. You don't have to jump through any kind of hoops in order to get the Holy Spirit. You merely get the Holy Spirit as a gift from God the moment you are saved. But let, don't let others talk you into believing anything that is contrary to this. The Holy Spirit of God testifies to the reality of the Son of God internally in the heart of every believer. And then externally, and we talked about this previously, externally through the fruit and gifts of the Spirit. You see, it's not just about, well, I believe I have the Spirit within. Again, chapter 4, do not believe every spirit, but test the Spirit. And the testing of the Spirit is what we've seen throughout this letter of 1 John. He said repeatedly, this is how you know. And then there is some external fruit, some external signs. So there is the testimony of the Spirit of God. Secondly, there is the testimony of water. Again, we've already concluded what that means. That is, it refers to the baptism of Jesus. So how then does the baptism of Jesus testify or give evidence to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, you will recall that, our, that we studied the Gospel of Mark some time ago for a rather long time, most of last year, 
And when we came to the baptism of Jesus, the Bible records for us that the Spirit of God descended upon him in the form of a dove. And it wasn't just that, but we also heard that God himself testified from heaven at that baptism when he said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We often pass over that without realizing the miracle that that indeed is. God spoke audibly to those who were present at Jesus' baptism, affirming his relationship with the Son. And that then is tremendous testimony. So there is the testimony of the Spirit of God. There is the testimony of the water, that is the baptism of Jesus. And then the third element is the testimony of blood. And again, we've defined that as referring to the death of Jesus Christ. We are aware of what a mighty testimony this was and continues to be. But we also know that in those moments, God intervened during the crucifixion. Let me remind you a few of those episodes or instances. We know that darkness came over all of the land. We know that at the very moment of his death, the curtain that separated the t in the temple, uh, the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was torn in two. And the Bible tells us that that took place from top to bottom, reminding us that nobody did it themselves. There was no man who went in the temple and tore it. It was God who tore it, signifying that now we all have access into the presence of God. Not just once a year for the high priest, but now all of us can come to God through Jesus Christ. We all have access to the Father through Him. Also, the earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many people who had died were raised to life. And the story goes on to say that many of these people went into the city and appeared to many others. So throughout all of this, God was testifying that this is his son. Not to even mention, though I need to, the resurrection. This too was, a, was another example, the chiefest example of God declaring that his son is, the, is God. Furthermore, the testimony of these three witnesses are in complete and total agreement. All of them testify to the same thing, that Jesus is the Christ. You know that the false witnesses at the trial of Jesus could not agree on their stories. But here we find agreement. The spirit, the water, and the blood, they have no such problems of disagreements. They wholeheartedly agree that Jesus is the Christ and therefore is worthy of our faith and our lives. And the purpose of this united testimony is to lead us to faith. Receiving the testimony of God the Father concerning the Son should lead us to believe in Him and therefore receive eternal life. So we've looked at some preliminary information. That is, some issues that we've had to deal with. And now we've seen the, that there is plenty of testimony. The Spirit and the water and the blood, they all say the same thing, Jesus is the Christ. So now we move to a positive identification. That is, we must come to terms with what this evidence leads us to, and we must then respond. John says all of this should lead us to believe in Jesus and therefore receive eternal life. In fact, he is the only one that can give us eternal life. There is only one that is God's son. And therefore, there is only one who can give us eternal life. Now, I know that sounds narrow-minded. 
I know that sounds exclusive. I know some would say that that is bigoted or intolerant or even worse. But the fact is, it is true. And if it's true, then we must respond to it. You know, even in a, even in a pandemic, there are people who are trying to scam us, right? You, you've read some of the articles about uh, beware of this or that scam. Because even when we are suffering as a people and as a nation, there are people who are trying to take advantage of that. In fact, this wasn't a scam, but it was, it was the opposite. Did you get your stimulus check yet? I just got mine this week. I finally got it. Many of you got it a long time ago. But they're actually paying some of those stimulus out, not the one I got, but some of those are being paid out in a, in a debit card. I, I don't want $2,400 on a debit card, but some people got it that way. Now, if you want to give me yours, I'll take it. But, uh, you know, I, I didn't want it in that format. But, you know, some people were actually throwing those out because they thought it was a scam. People didn't know that some people were being paid with a debit card, and so when they got it in the mail, they were fearful that it was a scam, and they threw it out. So the government had to come back and say, don't throw it out. It's legitimate. So I know there are scams, but what I'm talking to you about this morning is not a scam. Jesus Christ really is God's son. The evidence is overwhelming, and because he really is God's son, he therefore is the only way to have real life both abundant and eternal. He is offering you life, and he has a monopoly on it. You cannot find it anywhere else. You cannot get it anywhere else. Again, I know we live in a pluralistic society, and we're constantly being bombarded with with the information that there are other ways to God, or that's good for you, but someone else might find another way. But that is not the testimony that we find in this text. God's testimony is that there is only one son. His name is Jesus. There is overwhelming evidence to come to the conclusion that he is in fact God's son. And if that is all true, then he is the only one in whom we can have life. Therefore, it is up to you and me to respond uh, to that message. We can respond positively or we can reject it. You can embrace it or you can ignore it. But I need you to understand that your very life depends upon it. And when I say life, I mean eternal life. Look again at verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. John can't make it any clearer. The only way to have life is to have the Son. And he who does not have the Son does not have life. Now, when we talk about eternal life... We normally think in terms of duration. If I were to ask you, how would you define eternal life? You would say eternal life is a life that never ends. And that would be true. That is accurate. But it is not just that. Eternal life is not just a length of time. Eternal life is possessing the Son. That is, eternal life is the embracing of a person so that he indwells us currently by the Holy Spirit of God. So it is not just a period of time, though it is. It is a quality. That is a quality whereby we have Christ. And we need to understand that distinction so that it is not just a one-time decision. You know, when I ask people or you ask people if they know that they have eternal life, most of them go back in time. 
They say, oh yeah, I was baptized when I was eight. Or I joined the church when I was 12. Or they talk about some past event. I want you to understand that John is not asking us to look at the evidence by going back to a past event. He's asking us to look at our lives now and understand that having the son is a lifetime decision. It is not a one-time decision in the past that may or may not have ramifications in the present. It is a lifetime decision. So what I'm asking you this morning is this. Not have you trusted Christ in the past. What I'm asking you is are you trusting Christ now? What I'm asking you is, is your confidence in what Christ has done today not what you've done yesterday? I'm asking you if your hope is in Jesus. I'm asking you if you possess the Son, because he who has the Son has life. The one who does not, does not. Now, let's look forward just a moment. This is what we're going to look at next week. We're going to conclude 1 John next week. But look at verse 13. I've said it all along. This is the theme verse of John's letter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's John's desire for you. John's desire for you is not that you're wondering, not, what, not that you're doubting, not that you're confused. John's goal for you is not that you just have eternal life, as great as that is, but you know that you have eternal life. And knowing that you have eternal life, then you can live in the confidence that your faith and your trust is not in yourself, but it is in Jesus Christ, who is in fact God's son. And we know that because the evidence is overwhelming. Let me pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity we've had once again to dive into your word and hear what John wrote so many years ago through the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that we would, that every person listening or watching would know that they have eternal life. And if they do not, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do a work of convicting in their heart, that, they, that, that the Holy Spirit would convict them of sin and of their need for righteousness, and that the Holy Spirit would draw them to a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. A faith that lasts not just a lifetime, but a faith that lasts for eternity. Lord, you've made it very clear that the problem is not with the evidence. The problem might be a hard heart. The problem might be rebellion and disobedience. But there is plenty of evidence. Those who, those who seek a sign and those who want you to do this or that in order to prove yourself have simply misunderstood what the Bible has already said, and that is you have done exceedingly above and beyond to prove that Jesus is in fact who he said he was. And now it's up to us to respond by faith. I thank you for the many who have already done that, and I pray that you would encourage them and assure them of their faith. And for others, I pray that you would draw them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.